Amen. If you would grab your Bibles as you grab your seat and open with me to Mark chapter 2. Such an exciting day. We made it to chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 this morning. As you're turning there, I want to tell you uh, about a time when Meg and I were in the process of adopting Layla and Kingston. We had to spend a good amount of time at the courthouse um, for different reasons, different steps in the process. And <clears throat> you have to spend a lot of time waiting for your opportunity to actually to go in and see the judge. And so I spent a good amount of time looking around at the foyer at that courthouse because at that particular courthouse, they had several paintings throughout the room of different historical figures, and the figures were labeled. And so I was able to, you know, try to figure out, why did they choose these particular people? Because at first it seemed random, but then I figured out what the pattern was. There was like Hammurabi, and then there was Moses, and then there was like a 6th century Byzantine ruler, Justinian, and then there was Charlemagne, and in the mix of all these other leaders, there was Jesus. And so it took me some time to kind of work through, okay, why did they choose these particular historical figures to be on the walls of the courthouse? And then that's what clicked was it's the courthouse. And these different historical figures were known for presenting and giving important law codes throughout history. So Hammurabi's law code in the 1700 BC, and then Moses, you get the Ten Commandments, and so on and so forth. Each of them gave a certain law code in, at a certain time in history. But it, it stuck out to me that Jesus was added in amongst those others, because we, as we think about Jesus <clears throat> and what he did and what he was known for, was he didn't necessarily have like the Ten Commandments like Moses. I mean, he did have the Sermon on the Mount. He did have lots of good and important teachings, but we wouldn't necessarily describe them as law codes. And I think that what the person was trying to do as they chose these different historical figures is essentially they were trying to give a nod to Jesus and say, hey, yeah, he doesn't quite fit the pattern, but Jesus' teachings are important for the morality and the ethics of our culture. They were trying to kind of, I don't know, for lack of a better word, just put a dash of Jesus in what they were doing. And this stuck out to me because I, I think this is a pretty popular way of approaching Jesus. You don't really find that many people who are just staunchly 100% completely opposed to Jesus and what he taught and what he stands for. You find more often than not that there are people who kind of want to take a little bit of Jesus and incorporate that into their life. You know, they, they want to take a dash of Jesus. They're already considered themselves to be a spiritual person and they say, yeah, Jesus, he gave some good spiritual teachings, or you find someone who, who says, yeah, I want to be a good moral person, and so they take a few of Jesus's sayings and say, yeah, this is a good way for me to morally live my life. Or maybe there are a lot of people who say, I want to raise moral children, so I'm going to have them in Sunday school so they can learn some of those good basic things that Jesus taught, like the golden rule, you know, treat others as you want to be treated, or a really popular one is, judge not lest you be judged, or love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. And so the issue with approaching Jesus in this way is, is, is that you're making an assumption about who Jesus is and who he should be to you based off of just a few sound bites, a couple of quick clips or a couple of quick phrases, rather than taking into consideration all that Jesus said about who he was. <clears throat> it would kind of be like voting for a candidate 
based off of just a few sound bites. Now, you know they give hours of speeches presenting what they think and what their plan is, but you can just catch a, a few phrases or a few clips on the internet later or on the news later, and then trying to decide, yeah, I think I'll vote for that person based off of three sentences that they said. And you go, well, hang on, that's not a very good representation of that candidate. That's not a very good representation of who they are, what they stand for, who they should be for you. And I think that many people fall into that same attitude when it comes to Jesus. Yeah, he's a good moral teacher. He taught some important things. Let's add a dash of Jesus to how we live our lives. Well, if we are honest about what the Bible says, if we dig into all that Jesus said, all who he claimed to be, what we're going to find is that attitude of approaching Jesus, of having a little bit of Jesus in addition to your life, it doesn't really make a lot of sense according to what he said. And today's passage is a great example of that. Um, And so luckily, we can hear from Jesus himself of who he claimed to be. We don't have to build our opinions based off of a couple little quick sound bites. We don't have to think of him as many people do. Those pictures illustrated that this person just thought of Jesus as one amongst many important people. Is that how we should think of Jesus? Is that how he presented himself? Well, we can turn to our text this morning to answer that question. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 2. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So we know that Jesus is originally from Nazareth, but he's using Capernaum, which is another city in Galilee, as kind of a ministry home base, a place that he will routinely come back to to get some rest before he goes back out to do more ministry. Now, it says it's reported that he was at home, and what this means is that Jesus at this point, even though it's still early in his ministry, has become so popular and so widely known for his miraculous healings that he has to kind of like keep out of the public eye, because anytime people know where he is, they flood to him. And that's exactly what happens when people find out that he's back at home in Capernaum. Look at verse 2. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So they flooded to his house. It is packed full, so much so that you can't even get through the door. That's how full it is. That's how many people have come to hear Jesus preach. But the issue is there's this certain group of people who have either a friend or a family member who is paralyzed. And they want to bring this person to Jesus, this man to Jesus, so that Jesus would heal him. But they can't get to Jesus, so they come up with an interesting plan B. Verse 3. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Verse 4. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now this is one of the most I think, dramatic passages in Mark. It's so interesting. I mean, can you imagine being in a worship service? It's packed out. And then all of a sudden you hear a chainsaw start. 
and then the chainsaw blade plunges through the roof and sunlight comes in. If that wasn't shocking enough, then a man is lowered into the room. I mean, that's pretty startling, pretty amazing. You'd go, hang on, I don't think the church appreciates you cutting a hole in the roof, right? We actually just spent a little bit of money on our roof, so we don't want any holes in it. Well, um, this was unusual. This was bizarre. It was not necessarily, uh, as we learn about how their homes were built, it was not necessarily damaging to the home, but it was definitely not culturally acceptable, okay? The way that their homes were built was they commonly had an exterior staircase that allowed access to the roof because they used the roof kind of like a patio or a porch. And then also the way the roof was built was it was these main timbers spanning the gap with this, these smaller branches um, or thatching that goes across the timbers, and those were held together by mud. And so in the original language, the word is actually that they dug through the roof, which makes sense according to how the roof was made. And so it really wasn't that hard, and it wasn't that damaging that they made this hole in the roof. It would have been pretty easy to fix. But that doesn't make it less bizarre that you're in the middle of, a, of hearing a sermon, and then a person is lowered through the ceiling. This was a clear act of desperate faith. These people obviously believed that only Jesus can heal this man. And they obviously were desperate to bring this man before Jesus. And so they didn't care if it was rude. They didn't care if it was bizarre. They didn't care if it was breaking the social norms. They had to get this man before Jesus. Verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now this, as we keep reading, we're going to learn, is an astounding thing for Jesus to say. This is not a throwaway statement. This is an amazing claim of who Jesus thinks he is. And we'll notice first that it is uh, given by Jesus because of what? Because of the man's faith. Because he really believed that Jesus was who Jesus claimed to be. And because of that faith, Jesus then proclaims that the man's sins are forgiven. Well, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, this is how you would learn that this is an astounding claim. Because the Old Testament clearly teaches that only God can forgive sin. So, very clearly, who is Jesus claiming to be in this moment a, a good moral teacher someone with some wise sayings someone that you want to create some flashcards so you can memorize the sermon on the mount no jesus is claiming to be the one who can forgive sins he is claiming to be god in this moment and so if you want to take a, a sound bite just one little clip of something that Jesus said and try to define who Jesus is based off of that one little soundbite, you would be better suited to take this soundbite as opposed to love your neighbors as you love yourself. That's a good and important teaching that Jesus gave us, but it doesn't describe all of who Jesus is. This phrase here, as short as it is, does describe who Jesus thought he was. Son, your sins are forgiven. In this loaded statement, we see that Jesus claimed to know the content of our hearts. How else would he know that the, the paralyzed man needed sins to be forgiven? 
Now, this was an assumption. Some would say in that day, because the man was sick or ill or whatever, that people would just assume it was because of a sin. That's not true. Jesus gives clear teachings, especially like in John chapter 9, that not all illnesses or sicknesses are a direct result or punishment because of sin. So this is not, Jesus doesn't look at the man's outside physical appearance and assume sin because of his illness. Instead, Jesus says, I can see into you. I can see your heart. I can see the sin that is there. I know you need to be forgiven. So in this one phrase, we see that Jesus claimed to know the content of our hearts. He also then claimed to have the authority to forgive our sins. Again, something that only God can do as we look at different passages in the Old Testament. Lastly, we can see here that Jesus claimed that we should trust in him for reconciliation to God. I mean, think about the other people in the room and what they're hearing and what they are assuming about Jesus in this moment. If, this, if Jesus can forgive this man's sin... This means he can do it for us as well. It means that trusting in Jesus, having faith in Jesus, is the way for anyone to be made right to God again. The Bible tells us that it is appointed for man to die once. After that comes judgment. Judgment for what? Judgment to whom? Judgment for our actions, every single one of them. Yeah, of course we've had some good things that we've done. But what about all of our sin? about all the ways that we've dishonored and disrespected God. Well, the Bible tells us that we will stand before God as the judge for every careless word we've ever spoken, for every dark desire that we've harbored in our hearts, for every thought that you thought was secret. It is not a secret to Jesus. He knows the content of our hearts. And thankfully... He not only has the authority to forgive our sins, the ability to reconcile us to God, but the desire to do that as well. And so, in this one sentence, son, your sins are forgiven, Jesus is making some incredible claims. Essentially claiming what? To be God in the flesh. And so what this tells us is that these are not the words of only a good moral teacher. In fact, if these were his words, this would mean he could not be only a good moral teacher. What do I mean by that? That this idea of kind of writing the fence about Jesus, having a dash of Jesus added to your life, is completely illogical because he claimed to be God. If you claim to be God and are not God, that excludes you from being a good moral teacher. Because it's such a fundamental flaw of your ability to teach. It would be kind of like saying, hey, you want this guy on your baseball team. He's a great hitter. He can hit a line drive to the gap every single time. There's just one problem. He doesn't know where first base is. You go, ah, well, that's kind of a fundamental flaw. I don't think we want him on our team. It doesn't matter that he can hit it to the gap every time if he doesn't know how baseball works. It fundamentally doesn't doesn't matter. This one good thing is invalidated by this other error. Does that make sense? 
Jesus cannot give us some good teachings if he thinks he's God and is not God. I'll give you another example. You're trying out different churches. You go, you hear the sermon, and you're kind of liking the pastor. He tells some funny jokes. He clearly knows the Bible very well. He explains it clearly. You're getting close to the end of the sermon, and you're thinking, this might be the place for us. And then the preacher ends the sermon by saying, by the way, I'm God. Uh-oh, honey, get the kids. we got to get out of here quick. This guy's a lunatic. He's out of his mind. It wouldn't matter if he made you laugh. It wouldn't matter if he engaged you. It wouldn't matter if he knew the Bible well. If he thinks he's God and isn't God, I don't care what he's teaching. He's crazy. It would be a fundamental flaw to how his brain worked. It would completely invalidate everything else he taught. Unless he really was God. And so Jesus cannot be only a good moral teacher. The moment that he claimed to be God, that made him one of three things, necessarily. Either a liar, he was just trying to trick people so they could get something out of it. A lunatic, he's out of his mind. He thinks he's God and he's not. Or he's Lord. He really is who he says he is. And so we can't just add a dash of Jesus to our lives. We can't just take a couple of his good moral statements. We can't find some spiritual guidance in him. Because of who he claimed to be, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. This means that your children, bringing them to the Sunday school or life group or whatever you want to, or small group, whatever you want to call it, they don't need to just learn a couple of Jesus's teachings to be good moral people. They need to surrender to the lordship of Jesus. And you, as you try to to grow them into the 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 young men and women that you want them to be, the young men and women that you'll be proud of. You don't need to just add a dash of Jesus to your parenting. You need to parent in a way that is surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. And so if he is one of these three things, liar, lunatic, Lord, how would we know which one he is? I mean, because it's one thing to claim it, right? You can claim anything you want, but can you back it up? Can you prove it? Well, that's exactly what the people in the room that morning were wondering. Jesus, I can't believe you just said that. That you can forgive sins? Are you, are you crazy, Jesus? I mean, that's what they would have been thinking. And in fact, that's what we see as we keep reading. And Jesus wants to demonstrate to the people in the room that day and to us here this morning that he is no liar and he is no lunatic. Look at verse 6 with me. Now, some of the scribes, meaning the religious leaders, the people who knew the Old Testament forwards and backwards, they were sitting there, and what did they do? They immediately thought of these laws from the Old Testament, things like, don't claim to be God. Like, that's pretty clear, right? So they're they're sitting there, and they're questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
You see, at this moment, this is a a make or break for these people. They have gathered to Jesus because they've heard so many good things about him. But then he sits there and he claims to be God. What in the world? He better back it up, right? He better prove it here. And it's interesting because they're just thinking these things in their minds, having these questions in their heart. And look at what Jesus did, verse 8. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? So, here we see the proof. Jesus did not only claim to know the content of our hearts, but he proved it. It's one thing, uh, imagine what they're thinking. Jesus, how do you know that that guy needs to be forgiven of sin? And Jesus goes, I know what you're thinking. (laughs) He goes, oh, okay. Well, there's some proof. Let's see what else, how else he proved. Okay, verse 9. The question he presents to the people in the room. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know. Okay, so stop there. So the whole point of this question that Jesus is giving is that you may know. That people may see the proof that we need to see to accept all that Jesus claimed about himself. These amazing claims, right? Okay, Jesus, prove it to us. He said, here's how I can prove it to you. Here's how you may know. And and he set it up by asking this question. What's easier to say, your sins are forgiven or be healed? Get up and walk away. And for the listeners of the original day, they would have immediately known the answer. But because we're maybe a little bit less familiar with the Bible, I'll walk you through it so we can understand what Jesus is saying. Both of these things, your sins are forgiven and be healed, are equally hard to do. They are both things that only God can do. It doesn't matter how, how smart you are or how good you are, you can't heal people. You can't forgive sins. So both of these things are miraculous, things that only God can do. But one of them is easier to say than the other. Well, why? Because one of them has no visible proof when it happens. I mean, I can walk around and say, your sins are forgiven, and your sins are forgiven, and your sins are forgiven. And you go, okay, cool. How would we know? There's no visible demonstration. But if I started walking around and said, you know, be healed of this disease, be healed of that disease, be healed of this ailment, and it didn't happen, you go, this guy, right? He's, he's either a liar, he's trying to get something out of us, or he's crazy. He thinks he can do something that he cannot do. And so both are things that only God can do, but one of them has a visible proof when it happens. And so the idea is Jesus says, I'm going to prove to you that I can do the things that only God can do. The more important thing is that this paralyzed man would be forgiven of his sins. But to show you that I can do that, I'm also going to heal his body. Look at what happens. Verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man, referring to himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. 
So how did the crowd first respond when Jesus made that statement, son, your sins are forgiven? Oh my gosh, who does this guy think he is? And then how do they respond after he heals the paralyzed man? They glorify God. We've never seen anything like this. But here's the thing. Jesus did not just claim to do all of these things. He proved that he can do all of these things. He proved to know the content of our hearts. He proved to have the authority to forgive our sins. And he proved that we should trust in him for reconciliation to God. We should trust in him as the one who can make us right to God. He essentially backed it up, right? I mean, you can say whatever you want to say, but unless you can back it up, Meg's brother tells the story. You know how guys are when they're in college. They talk big, right? Um, but they, you know, that's just part of it. He said that, that his friends got so bad about this that they came up with, I guess you would call it a game. It's maybe a weird word for this, but uh, that if someone made this big, bold claim... And then someone called him out and said, back it up. If they could not do the thing they claimed to be able to do, there was a consequence. And the consequence was they had to pee their pants. Wherever they were, whatever they were doing. So they're in the cafeteria for lunch or whatever. Man, I love these chicken nuggets. I could eat 50 of these chicken nuggets. Back it up. And if they did not eat 50 of the chicken nuggets, they were supposed to pee their pants. Ridiculous, I know. But you get the point is it's easy to make bold claims about who you are and what you can do. It's a lot harder to back it up. And, and, and Jesus here, he did not just say these amazing things about himself. He proved it to us, who he is, what he can do, why we should trust in him. And so church, clearly we see He is no liar. He is no lunatic. What does that mean? He's Lord. It doesn't make sense for there just to be a dash of Jesus in your life because that is not a Lord. A Lord is the one who has the authority to guide and direct and command, and we are the ones who are obedient to the Lord. That doesn't sound like a dash to me. That doesn't sound like uh, an addition to my spiritual life. That doesn't sound like a couple good things that my kids need to learn as they're growing up. It sounds like something entirely different. It sounds like Jesus is not one amongst many of people who gave us good and important things. He is the one, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that truth. So church, what I think we see in this text is as we walk through it, as we're here amongst brothers and sisters, it feels so obvious and it feels so clear. But once we leave this place and we get back out in a culture that just wants just a dash of Jesus and the rest of it just is weird and bizarre, right? Oh, that's old-fashioned. That's outdated. Yeah, it's good that he taught us a couple things. And once we get out in that world, it's easy for those doubts to begin to creep in and to begin to feel a little foolish to say that this man who lived 2,000 years ago and taught some things, he's the Lord of your life. 
but he is. Because he's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. He didn't just claim these amazing things. He proved them. And so I just want to encourage you that if outside of this building it feels somewhat foolish to be a Christ follower, that that's normal. That that's exactly what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That God has chosen to use the foolishness of our preaching to shame the wisdom of this world. And so hold tightly to your Lord. He's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. He proved that he can do these things. And let your foolishness shame the wisdom of the world. Because when we do that, when we bring this message, when people begin to actually see who Jesus is, they become desperate for him. Like the paralyzed man was. That if we were more active and and more obedient to, to tell the world who Jesus is, that this place would be packed out, that people would be hopefully not cutting holes in the roof. But you get the point. Because every single person that you run into out there, they have a problem that only God can fix. They're desperate for him and they don't know it. They've been deceived and they think that a dash of Jesus is enough. Instead, they need to see him for all of who he is. And if we would do that, they would be desperate for him. Church, don't you see that your kids need much more than just a dash of Jesus in their life? And that means more than Sunday morning, Wednesday night, Sunday night. They need you to show them what it means to live under the lordship of Jesus. They need you to demonstrate that in the ways that you talk, in the ways that you manage your your household, in the ways that you manage your finances, in the ways that you manage your time as a family. All of those things are how you show your children that Jesus is not a liar, that he's not a lunatic, that he is the Lord. And so as we wrap up this morning, I want to ask you this. If you see now that it does not work, it doesn't make sense for Jesus to be only a good moral teacher. It doesn't make sense just to have a dash of Jesus in your life. I want to ask you, what will you do with this claim that he's made? What will you do with this proof that he has given you? Will you trust in him? Will you place your faith in him? Would you be like the paralyzed man and believe in Jesus and in doing so, you will receive the same gift as the paralyzed man? And I'm not talking about the physical healing. I'm talking about the greater gift because one day the paralyzed man's legs stopped working again. But one day... At the end of his life, because of his faith in Jesus, he was welcomed into eternal life. In paradise with God forever, where there is no pain, and there is no death, and there is no disease. That he was, he was healed eternally one day. You can receive the same gift if you would trust in Jesus with the same faith.
you have a need that only God can fill. You have a problem that only God can fix. And Jesus has proved to you this morning that that's who he is. So would you receive him? Would you place your faith in him? Father, we're so thankful for your perfect and holy word.